you may be seated. We have to give at least one person a hug as you're sitting down, so it makes it really, Pastor Dave said awkward, so it's all good. Well, I have no need to give introduction. Uh, John Roberts, he's been teaching us for two weeks. This is week three, uh, and the logical thing to do yeah. is to hand it over to you. Mike, you get over there. All right, there all you right. go. All right. Well, hope you guys are enjoying the sun. Uh, we are actually going to get to the passage that uh, I'm going to tell you to turn to. So we're going to Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. So that's where we're going to be. But we're not going to be there for a little while. Okay, we've got to get through some preliminary stuff uh, to get there. So uh, kind of the way this is going to work is we're going to start off with uh, a review, quick little review on the things we've covered already. Um, and then the goal is from there to dig into logic. And like I've been telling you guys and promising you from the very beginning, uh, I'm going to explain to you why all this matters. So at the end of today, uh, we should have a pretty clear picture how this all works together. And then in two weeks after a wedding, um, next Sunday, in two weeks, we will have a uh, one last time together. Um, and really what that's going to be is we're going to walk through some examples. Um, so I'll put an example up and I'll say, okay, let's talk about how you would talk to, we use atheists all the time, so we'll probably touch on that briefly, but then also talk about uh, Muslim, Mormon, uh, agnostic, you know, something along those lines. We're going to dig into a whole bunch of those. And then I have some nice little things, kind of uh, little flyers for you to take with you that have some ideas of how to do that. Um, so ultimately my goal here is to show you guys um, what the Bible teaches about apologetics, how we should approach it, how it's a complete worldview switch for us. Um, because the world demands that we say, here's the evidence, I'll make up my mind on it. And instead, God's word says, no, God is the truth, and then work up from there. So we're having to change the way we view things and change the way we do our apologetics, ultimately with the idea of winning souls. So we started off the first week. We looked at First Peter. Oh, and by the way, about the, uh, the note packets, um, there's only going to be three pages. It's actually supposed to be eight pages. Um, I'm not just going to go shorter. Sorry. I um, promise I'm not going to talk too fast. I was told I talked really fast last time. Um, but uh, if you want the note packet or if you want my notes, um, I can, uh, I'll put up some paper in the back and you can just write your email address and I'll just share it via Google Drive. If you don't have that, I'll just email it to you. Okay? And then that way you can do, you can use the backs if you want. Try to keep up. I'm going to talk. I'm just going to go. Um, there's some nice little fill in the blanks. So I want you guys to, to see those, but um, we just don't have them here today. And that's just the way it breaks sometimes. As a teacher, um, you know, we constantly have to be going with the flow. Usually it's your best lesson um, that you have the biggest video, whatever, and then that's the day your projector bulb goes out. Or there's no electricity. Or there's an impromptu fire drill. Or fill in the blank. Um, I'm just glad that that's the way most of the time it happens. It's not, I think it's really good, and it's not, and my boss is sitting right there. So it's always a, a nice thing that that hasn't happened yet. I mean, hopefully it won't. So, week one, we talked about 1 Peter 3.15. That was the passage, uh, set apart Christ as Lord, uh, always being ready with a defense, a verbal defense, a apologia, um, with respect and uh, with kindness as we defend the faith. So that's the kind of the main goal. And most people, when they read that verse, they do not get that first part, which is set aside, set aside Christ as Lord. We start at our starting place 
and we help the non-believer see the futility of where they are and why they need to come to our ground as opposed to let's just imagine there's no God and then walk over onto their territory. And I spent a lot of time talking about that. There is no neutral ground. As soon as you say there is no God, you're on their territory. And it's no wonder that when we're on their territory, we end up at their conclusion. You know, you don't get on a plane to Chicago and go, we ended up in Chicago. How did we end up here? Right? It's the plane going to Chicago. You go into their territory and you say, let me argue about whether there's a God. Well, their presupposition, their worldview, their starting place is there is no God. And you've now given up your sword. Okay, I was reading ahead in Ephesians while you were reading it this morning, and it's talking about putting on the whole armor of God, right? And we look at all that, and that just comes from God's Word. And we set aside, well, let's put the Bible aside, and let's debate God. What? Right? That's, that's ridiculous. You're, you're, you're a Marine putting aside your AR-15. It's your patent putting aside your tank, right? I mean, however you want to understand that, you can't do that, okay? And so we have to start from our worldview and then argue from there. So that was the first week. Second week was worldviews. We spent a lot of time talking about the differing worldviews. We talked about monism. Everything is one, very much a Hindu New Age type of feel. We talked about dualism, that there are some kind of like perfect things out there and everything here is a shadow of that. We talked about how Plato kind of believed that. And then we talked about materialism, by far and away the most popular in America today. And that is atoms. Every little piece of us is made up of matter that it's all based on stuff. There is nothing outside of what we can see. And we saw determinism. There's no free will. You know, you're just a, a product of your environment. You're a product of economic systems. We then also saw that there was, you have complete free will. Make yourself whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. Decide whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Okay? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset. And then we looked at a third group, which is kind of like, why are you all talking so much about this? It's pragmatic. Skeptic, we can't know anything or what doesn't really matter. Let's just do with what works. And so those are the kind of mindsets we saw. And so what we've done so far is we've said, okay, there is no neutral ground. Here's the ground they're standing on. And now what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about how would we entertain what they're standing on and what's the problem with it. Because if we believe God's word, which I'm assuming you all do because you're here, God's word says it is truth. Jesus is our truth. I, uh, one of my colleagues told me a long time ago, he said, truth has nothing to fear from investigation. All right? And if Jesus is the truth, if God's word is true, we shouldn't be like, well, I don't want to investigate too much. I don't want, I don't want to know too much because ultimately you can't know too much. That's what we're going to spend eternity doing is going into the depths of God and knowing him more and more and more closely throughout all of eternity. So we can go deeper and deeper and deeper. We don't have to fear truth. We have truth on our side. If the Bible is true, every other worldview is false. Every other worldview has a problem with it. If it has a problem with it, it is incumbent on us as believers to show them their problem. The Bible says they are fools. And we'll talk about what the definition in the Bible of fool is. It's not the kind of fool we talk about. It's a different type of fool. And they're in a dream world. It's our job to help wake them up. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to do the uh, calling to repentance, but we are to be vessels of the Holy Spirit, and the way we do that is by pointing them to the truth. Okay, so all we're doing today is we're going to clarify what you all do already. Okay, now I, I don't know, I, maybe it's because I'm a little bit on the older side, um, but I went on Google and I typed in the word logic, right, thinking I'm going to get some cool backgrounds. Well, apparently there's a really popular rapper named Logic. 
And so all I could get were pictures of him and his lyrics for like the first 30 or so Google pages. You know how you click at the bottom and it keeps getting longer. And I'm just like, oh, and then it's girls at his shows, selfie. It's like there was, I couldn't find any cool backgrounds because of that. Usually I just type it in and go, hey, look at cool backgrounds. So it's kind of going to be boring, but it's logic. We all use it. All I'm going to be doing tonight is I'm just going to be giving you some names and some clarification on what we do when we talk logic. So that way, when someone says something illogical, i.e. anytime you see a commercial, you're going to see the fallacy. You're going to see the problem with it. And ultimately, when it actually matters, you're going to be able to help someone see how illogical they are so that they can see the truth that is Christ. Okay? So let's see if my clicker will reach all the way back there. There we go. The Bible's really big on reasoning. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we have to reason. Come let us reason. Come let us think deeply. Okay? Logic is not the ground of the scientist only. It's not the emotionless Dr. Spock. This is God's territory. God is the one who created logic because he is reasoning. He's rational. He reasons with us. He talks to us. He communicates. All of that is logic. Why else do we think that logic is important? Well, I'll go ahead and pitch through all these so they're all up there. Maybe. Come on. All right. So first one is, is that logic is commanded by Jesus. Matthew 22, 36 through 38, we are commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Okay? Now, ironically, the uh, ancients actually used to not think that your brain was the thing that was in charge of you. They actually would say, anybody know what part of the body? Your stomach. <laughs> yeah. Because you think about it, when you get nervous, you get anxious, what happens, right? Pterodactyls flying around in there, you know? It's like you're going, Whoa. So they, they felt like your emotions and sometimes even your thoughts came from your stomach. And so a lot of times in the tr- older translations, you can see something about stomach, heart, soul, and stomach. You're like, I'm going to praise God with my stomach because we know what does now. Not quite the same. This isn't a call to do barbecues, even though I don't think God has a problem with that. All right? So logic and reason is our mind. That's what it meant. It meant thinking. The second was is that logic was used by Jesus, right? John's baptism. This was the passage uh, mentioned in Matthew 21 when he basically laid out a, a, a problem. He said, well, is it, it's from if John's baptism is this, it's that. If it's not this, it's that. If, what, what is it? He, he got the Pharisees trapped, if you remember, okay? Because he goes, now, was John's baptism from the Lord? And the Pharisees are like, well... If we say that, then it's this. If we say that, then it's this. We don't like either, so they go, well, I don't know. Jesus goes, well, when you come back, when you have an answer. He put them in a logical problem, one of those math word problems that we all loved in high school, right? He put us in one of those problems, and he used logic to explain it, okay? Also, it's the mind of God. The word logos, word, means order or thought, okay? It's a Greek word that is used all over the place by Greek thinkers, philosophers, and things like that to mean all sorts of deep thinking, all right? And God is called the Word. And then finally, logic's inescapable. I love this one because if you think about it, people go, well, I don't believe in Western logic. Well, you just used it. You just did, okay? To use a, to put together a sentence that is not random, it uses logic, okay? You don't go up to somebody and somebody's going to talk and they're going orange, uh, potato strudel, airplane nose hair, face grows, right? There's nothing to that. It's just a bunch of random sounds. But when we put together words and all that sentence diagramming that we also really loved in high school, all right? Anybody going to amen on that one? 
Okay, all the sentence diagramming and all the noun, verb, adverb, pronoun, all those other words that we don't even really know, but those going together to make a logical explanation. Logic is used by all of us. It's used on a regular basis. So we have to be able to use it and put it in our tool belt to be able to use it well. So reasoning is a very important thing. It means drawing proper conclusions from other information. This is what logic does. We take information, we draw a conclusion from it. Okay. Later on, we're going to see the words premise, premise, conclusion. We do this all the time. Okay, um, you, you're in your house and you hear a loud beep and you smell smoke. You're going, that probably was my smoke detector beeping. You don't go and check and see if the microwave is beeping or the televisions are beeping or your phone. You're going, smoke, beep, okay, we're getting out of here. That, that's the way our brains work. That is reasoning. That is logic. You're putting things together to make sense of what's going on around you. Okay, without the ability to reason, we'd be able to discuss, preach, teach, talk, we'd be unable to do most anything. Reasoning is what makes us different than the animals. Yes, different than the animals. We are not just a highly evolved animal. We are not the top of the food chain. We are vastly different. Occasionally you'll hear somebody say, well, we're descendant from monkeys, or we have very much similarities with monkeys. It's just that they have some reasoning ability. We have a vast amount of reasoning ability. And so we are very different. We're actually in the image of God. We're to follow God's commands. In other words, proper reasoning opens the mind so that, and I love this, so that it can close upon the truth of God's word. Okay, it's to close upon God's truth. To follow his commands. But ultimately, the big word on this page is logical. So I want to show you a very logical statement. Okay, the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Right, everybody knows Dr. Spock. You know, he is the uh, epitome of cold logic. We also know, unless you are kidding yourselves when it comes to Oregon football, we know that Dr. Spock is right when he says that, okay? Now, if you're not a Ducks fan, sorry. It means you probably don't like good football. But um, that's beside the point. Um, I know, I just like half you are going to leave now. I know it. Okay, so here's our definition of logic. Logic is the science and art of reasoning well, okay? For something to be logical, it has to be put together well. It has to be put together correctly. And so as we dig into logic tonight, and as we try to get our minds wrapped around it, we're going to see that there are ways to abuse logic. Those are called fallacies, and we'll talk about what those are in a little bit. But using logic, you can show and you can, you can get your point across in ways that other people can't if they don't have that. Because there's all sorts of things that people say, I feel this way, or, or I, I just, I know this is the truth. Well, why? Well, I don't have any reason. We have a reason for the hope that's within us. And it's not just our experience. There's so much more to it than that. And so we can put this all together, and it becomes ironclad. And what ends up happening is we see in the Bible, we see that they become fools because they are denying logic. And you'll actually get people that will say, well, I don't believe in logic but you're using it for your point. Poorly, but you're using it. But I deny it. Well, that's like, let's, let's talk about why air doesn't exist. Well, you're using air to prove that air doesn't exist. It doesn't work. Okay, it's the same thing when it comes to logic. Logic includes discovering and identifying patterns and rules by which 
we think, by which we reason. Okay, so we're going to look at some of these rules and some of these guidelines. Now, logic is not something that man creates. It's not something that we've just come up with. Um, I've done some reading this last week of some atheists, some responses to the idea of logic. And, and some of the ones that we get are, well, it's just the way things are. Or it's just what works, kind of trying to spin it pragmatically. Well, then, if it's just the way things are or if it's just the way things work, that's lending itself towards more of a relativism. And when you get into that, everything's right and everything can be wrong. And nothing is right. And up is down. And it just, before you know it, there's no standard for anything. But yet, we live by standards. We say, that's right, that's wrong. This is hot, this is cold. We have those standards. And so we need to understand why it is that we have that and how we can use logic to do that. It is an attribute that reflects God, okay? It is not something that's above God, okay? This is not something that, you know, God has created. It flows out of him, right? It flows out of him. Some people have had debates in church history about what is good. Is God good because there's a standard above him, which means good would be God and God's not good, okay, because he's under it? Or is it that God is over and whatever he does is good, which is what the Muslims believe, Allah can say tomorrow the exact opposite of what he's always said, but because he said it, it becomes good, right? So if that's where it is, but we as Christians believe God is good. It's his nature, and so it flows out of him. He can't help but be good. It's who he is. He can't help but be logical. It's who he is. He can't help but reason with us. It's who he is. So this is not something that's above God or something that God sometimes uses as a tool, it's his nature. So get this, as we study reasoning and how we think, we get to know God better because that's the sole characteristic of his that we reflect most greatly of all of creation. No one else in creation can sit and think about the nature of God like we can and know God like we can. And it's a shame because in the Bible it says, you know, the rocks and the trees and the mountains are going to cry out because many of the people that are walking our streets and driving our streets are thinking and contemplating on something else. Chasing a Pokemon here, going to this movie there, going to this game, thinking about all the ways they can numb themselves to the truth that they know deep down inside, which is that there's a God and he loves them and cares them. So this is what flows out of his character. All right. So we are going to now dig into some rules of logic. Originally, I had a little fight club thing that said the first rule of logic is you don't talk about logic, but I was worried that that might be over the top. But my pastor today said brown nosing in church, so I think I'm okay with doing that. Um, so I'll reference fight club. I am not endorsing it, or should you watch it in any way? But those of you that have seen it will get that joke. All right, the law of the excluded middle. So I'm going to introduce you guys to three laws, okay? These are laws of logic. These are not subject to change. These are not subject to interpretation. They are laws. These are the way we see the world. This is the way the world is. Okay? Now, as a teacher, and having been a student myself, and I will be the first to admit, I was not the best student. Uh, I found some old grades from my first year at Portland Christian. Uh, my eighth grade year, my first semester, I got a D in Bible class. And now I teach Bible just down the hall from where I got that D. Um, 
So I go in from a public school that wasn't doing very well, which I will not name, um, to uh, private school was a big culture shock for me, plus I was lazy. So combine the two together, you all, you have a problem. But as a student, and I know some of you have done this before, when you get a true-false question and you don't know what it is, you write a T, but you kind of make it look like a F, right? Anybody ever done that? Come on, be honest, right? Or, or you get a multiple-choice question, you're like, I don't know, so you kind of make it an A with a little bit higher stem, so you can say, well, I meant D, you just did, you know, we find ways to do it, right? Well, the problem is, with this law, something is either true or it is false. It's not both. When we make a statement, when we narrow the statement down to the, the heart of the statement, it is either true or it is false. It can't be a little bit true and a little bit false. Okay? It's like the idea of a vacuum. You either have a vacuum or you have air. You don't have, well, this is only 70% vacuum. Okay? All right? So th there's this idea here that there is no middle ground. Something, when you make an absolute statement, it is either true or it is false. Now, this one doesn't necessarily come up very often. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one. The next one is the law of identity. And it's cut off on the side, sorry. If it's true statement, it's true. Okay? If a statement is true, then it is true. What that means is there's no waffling about it. All right? If the statement is true, it is true. Okay? This, leans, this lends towards uh, absolute truth, and there's some discussion here. Again, these are ones, they're the big three laws of logic. You're not going to necessarily use this one either, except for maybe when you take a believer to the point, or non-believer to the point where they say, yes, that's true, but I'm just not going to believe it, okay? And that's a little more of a, like a psychological thing. They're saying, I want to continue in my sin. I'd rather not believe in that thing. But here's the one. This is the big one. This is the one we all have to know. The statement cannot be both true and false. This is the law of non-contradiction. And this one is huge. So huge that I've given you two and a half pages of homework on this. And I'll show you what this homework looks like here in a second. Because this, you get this down, this is going to be home base for defending your faith. Because when two things contradict each other, they both can't be true. They both cannot be true. And you're like, well, I could probably think of, okay, there's a little more to this. The law of non-contradiction says two things cannot be in the same way contradictory to each other. So the way to explain this that I've found that's most easily understood is A cannot equal A and non-A at the same time. All right? Something can't exist and not exist at the same time. It has to be one or the other. And see, this law of non-contradiction starts to, once we start to get our mind wrapped around this, we're going to be able to see through a lot of the crud that's thrown our way. These are also called self-defeating statements, okay? If it can't stand its own criteria, then it's not true, all right? If it cannot equal A and non-A at the same time, if an argument cannot meet its criteria, it is false. Okay, so now that I know probably hit like a, a, a thud going, okay, well, that's great. Okay, what does this mean? Let's, let's get through this. Let me show you. Ancient philosopher by the name of Avicenna. Anybody been reading him lately? Okay, probably just Pastor Matt. This is what Avicenna said about the law of non-contradiction. A person who doesn't believe in the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned. Ooh, rough. Until he agrees that being beaten and burned is not the same as not being beaten and not being burned. 
All right? So the idea here is you can't have it both ways. You can't say the opposite of something and have them both be true at the same time. Okay? Because as soon as you do that, now we're talking complete gibberish. So let's try a couple, because this is what you're going to be doing for your homework. I'll give you a little statement, and these are actual statements from people that you will encounter at some point. And I've listed what kind of thinking they do. So here's the first one. See if you can help me out on this one. There is no truth. <laughs> so is it true? Okay? Because if it's true, then there is truth, so then there, and then your mind just starts to go, <laughs> right? Okay? So there is no truth is a self-defeating statement. As soon as you say there is no truth, you've just made a truth statement. So if that's true, then it's false. Right? Okay. How about this one? All truth, and I love it whenever a non-believer says the word all, because usually that's like, lob it up in the air, okay, all right? All truth is relative. What's wrong with that one? Is that truth relative? Because if it's relative, then they're all not relative. Again, right, your mind starts to explode. All truth is relative. Here's another one. You can't know the truth. What's wrong with that statement? How do you know that? Right? How do you know? You can't know the truth. Well, then I can't know if that's true, so I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing. And this is one that we get all the time. That is true for you, but not for me. That one's a little bit harder. How's that one self-defeating? If true is true, it's true, right? So it's not something that is true for this person. True for now, we get caught on this one because this one, we see a lot of different people that do a lot of different things. Right? There are people that eat their breakfast for dinner, and there's their, you know, and they do it. Other cultures do things this way and that way. Okay, but we're not talking about pluralism. We're talking about if something is true or not true. If something is true for you, and it's true, then it's true. Not true for you, but not true for me, but true. As soon as you recognize it as true, it is true. All right. So that's where we start to see issues with that one. And we'll talk about this one a little bit more next week as we go through it. So I like what Edward, uh, I think I have a slide for this one, if I can get my pointer in the right spot. I love this. I saw this little bumper sticker. They can't all be true. Okay, as soon as you have one that has a uh, truth claim that contradicts another truth claim, all religions can't be true then. Jesus says, I am the way. Well, as soon as he says that, it can't be Jesus is one way, Muhammad's another way, you know, Buddha's another way. All right? I don't see a lot of those bumper stickers in Portland. So there were our four statements, and I thought this was a good little quote here. Assertions without arguments to back them up are like spitballs. Anyone can make them, anyone can fling them, and while they annoy their target, they draw no blood whatsoever. So as we look at non-contradiction, for your homework, you've got a nice little list of statements. And what I want you to do is just, you don't have to even write it if you don't want to. It wouldn't be bad, okay? Look at them and say, how would I defeat those? How would I defeat that? If someone comes along and says, you know, everything is one, what would you say to that? If someone comes along and makes a statement about truth that doesn't match up with the Bible, doesn't match up with its own self, it's not true. You throw it right out. There's no reason to believe it. And they do get harder as they go along, okay? So the early ones are kind of those softball ones, and then from there, these are issues. So this is just non-contradiction. All right. Now, there's two kinds of logic, inductive and deductive. We're going to do deductive because, one, it is the way most people think, 
all right? Inductive is the way scientists think. And I would argue that inductive thinking is the best way for us to approach science and the scientific community and talk about why we can believe inductively. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in two weeks. But I think inductive is easy for a Christian. Inductive says there's all these facts and we're going to reason to a big idea. So there's this little thing, this little thing, this little thing, this little thing. Ooh, big idea. That's inductive. Deductive is a little bit different. Deductive reasoning from the general down to the particular. So you make a general statement, and you add another general statement, and you equal at a specific statement. Okay? Any fans of Sherlock here or elementary or any of those iterations of Sherlock Holmes? Right? He does deductive reasoning. He takes all these big things, and he's like, well, of course. You know, Watson, it was that little ash, which is the ash from that, which is the mud from there. And then before you know it, he's got this all figured out. And you're like, what just happened? And it probably wasn't Moriarty, but it might have been, right? Okay, so we have this idea of deductive, which is you start from big picture and go down to small. That's the way most of us think. And we'll see that as we start looking at what are called syllogisms here in a minute. So deductive is what we're going to deal with. Inductive we'll touch on very, very briefly. Deductive arguments the most important, so we're going to concentrate on them. So here is what an argument looks like. You have a premise plus a premise, which equals a conclusion. All right? Usually it's the word therefore or because or something along those lines. And if you speak math, that's the symbol for therefore. Right? And if you ever do any philosophy, you usually map out the different arguments and you try to make sure that they match. And there's different types of arguments. They have all sorts of different Latin names, way beyond my pay scale, way beyond our attention span. So basically, it's a premise and a premise and a conclusion. And the way we understand it is if both premises are true and valid, then we end up with a true conclusion and a valid conclusion, all right? And so what ends up happening a lot of times when we're talking to a non-believer is they might have two premises and then the conclusion doesn't tie to one of them. And that's not a reasonable argument. It's false. It's, it's, it's not flowing logically. And when we can show that and the Lord is gracious enough to open their eyes, they can see it. Then we start to now address their worldview. And when their worldview starts to erode and they realize they've been borrowing from our worldview, they go, oh my goodness, maybe this Christianity thing has something to it. And hopefully that leads to the next step, which is them becoming a believer. All right, so here's an example of an argument. The Bible is the Word of God, premise one. The book of Jonah is definitely in the Bible. Therefore, here's your conclusion, we must conclude that the book of Jonah is the Word of God. Pretty basic argument, all right? We would all go, yep, that's true. We would also probably be able to say it's valid. Being valid means that both of the premises equal the conclusion, okay? Now, if it said something like, the Bible is the Word of God, the book of Hezekiah is definitely in the Bible, therefore we must conclude the book of Jonah is the Word of God. It would be a valid argument, but it would be a false thing, because Hezekiah, while being a king, did not have a book in the Bible, okay? But it's a nice way to trick students when you put it on a test, all right? Okay? Another one, the Bible is the Word of God, and the Book of Mormon is definitely not in the Bible. Therefore, we must conclude that the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. Now, this is one, this is a little bit of a struggle, all right? Because we all agree with the conclusion, 
We would say it's true, and it actually is valid. Now, we would say it's a very weak argument. Just because it's not a book that was in the Bible doesn't mean it's not from God. Okay, the Mormons do argue that it was an extra add-on later on down the road. There's some problems with that, mainly, well, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But there's some problems with the idea that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God and some issues with that. So this would be a valid and a true argument. Okay, everybody see that? Premise, premise equals to a conclusion. Here's another example. I think I have it in your paper, too. Come on. Given the Iliad was written, Iliad was written by Homer and that the Odyssey is definitely not in the Iliad, therefore we must conclude that Homer did not write the Odyssey. Now, this is one where we have a false conclusion, but we have a valid argument. Okay? Now, the reason why it's a valid argument is because premise one plus premise two does equal the conclusion. Everybody see that? So, the Iliad was written by Homer. That's a premise. The Odyssey is definitely not the Iliad. Also a premise. And the, uh, therefore, Homer did not write the Odyssey. The conclusion flows from it, but the conclusion is false. Okay? How is the conclusion false? It's, there's, there's something wrong with one of the premises. Okay? There's actually an assumption in the second premise. The assumption is, is that if the Odyssey, uh, the, the Odyssey was in the Iliad, would be the only way that it would be written by Homer. Okay? If there, there's, some, there's, a, there's a little bit of an assumption there that Homer only wrote one thing, or that the Iliad was all of his writings, like the collected works of Homer. All right? So you see there's a little, it's sneaky. We go, of course that's not true. I had to read that in class, or at least, you know, spark notes it in class, right? Okay? That, while being valid, is not true because of an assumption. There's something wrong with the way the syllogism is created. And that is what we're going to see in a few minutes when we talk about fallacies, okay? So, quick explanation of what we just touched on. This is a syllogism, okay? Uh, it's a big, grandiose word for two uh, propositions or premises that equal a conclusion, okay? Uh, that's about the best definition uh, you can do for it. Uh, I make my students memorize a definition similar to this. A conclusion from two propositions each of which shares a term with the conclusion that comes together. All dogs are animals. All animals have four legs. Therefore, all dogs have four legs. One of the premises is false, but the conclusion lines up. It's a valid argument. Okay? So that's what a syllogism is. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because, again, we're just, we're just giving names to what you guys already do. You already use logic, and you already line up premises. Kids are great at this, by the way. They'll line up their premise. Here's why I shouldn't do this. And here's why I shouldn't do that. Therefore, I should have extra ice cream tonight. I mean, that's kind of, you know, they, they do that. They're very argumentative and try to line up their premises. And many times, it's way off, right? But we do it on a regular basis. We do it a lot of times without even thinking about what we're doing. Now, here's a syllogism example. All red plants are living. All the roses are red plants. Therefore, all roses are living things, okay? So if you were taking a full-on logic course, you'd be diagramming it like this. All M are P, all S are M, therefore all S are P. You can draw yourself a nice little Venn diagram and diagram it out. And that's what you do when you take a logic course. That's probably what you did when you took your, your course on logic and philosophy before. Anytime you get stuck on a person's argument, you can always write it out and just kind of dialogue with the person. 
Because you're going to run into people that have great arguments, and they're going to be great arguers. You have to be able to see through it to what they're actually arguing, which is why we didn't start with this day one. We started with no neutral ground, then worldviews, and now we can start kind of trying to put together how it is these people are thinking and what that exactly means. All right? So, kind of touched on this already. Truth and validity, okay? Syllabism, syllogism, yeah, is valid if and only if the conclusion necessarily true given that the premises are true, okay? So, again, it's that idea that something can be valid, which means the argument is sound, and something can be true, which means everything in it is true. So there's back and forth that we see with that. Um, and we get really hung up on people who make great, valid arguments that are false. And we go, but wait a second, why is that Homer one wrong? I know it's wrong, but you look at the two premises, it, 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 how does that work? And my students and I will do this. I'll put up, put up an argument on the board, and I'll say, all right, figure out why that's false. Well, we know it's false. No, why is it false? Because just saying something's false is doing exactly what we're told not to do. We're told to have a reason for our faith. We're not just supposed to go, yeah, I believe it. Why? I believe it. Well, why do you believe it? Because I believe it. Cool. All right, good talking, right? That's, that's the end of conversation. Why? What's the rationale? What's the reason behind it? All right, so moving along, all dogs are brown animals, all poodles are dogs, therefore all poodles are brown animals. Valid, not true, right? There's, there's, there's ways that poodles can be all sorts of different colors, right? All dogs are mammals, all dogs are canines, therefore all canines are mammals. Again, a valid, is that a true statement? All right, all canines are mammals, yes true statement. All right, now comes the fun part, because this is what you will be doing on a regular basis now. And I know there's not any, any of these written in there. I've listed out a whole bunch of fallacies. There are hundreds of fallacies. Um, I came up with one of my own. It's not been codified. Stanford hasn't been using it like that. But it's the reductio ad Hitler, right? Okay, reduce it to Hitler and you win the debate. Well, Hitler did it. Oh, okay, I guess we're not doing it, right? So it, it's something people use on a regular basis. They find the worst example, and they reduce it to, oh, well, Hitler did, and then if Hitler did it, then we can't be doing it, right? Okay, Hitler did this on this day, and we can't. So that's, there's all sorts of arguments like that. And some are really ridiculous, or fallacies, I mean. All sorts of fallacies. Some are ridiculous, like mine. But a lot of these get used, and most people don't even catch it. They just go, something's funky. I don't quite know what it is, but something's wrong. And so fallacies, it's not important that you remember that this is an ipsdixit fallacy or this is a two-for-two two or a chronological snobbery or whatever. It's important that you go, something smells here and it's your logic and be able to detect that there's something wrong. Because guess what? You can go online, you can type in the fallacy, the idea, and you'll come up with the fallacy so you can bring it right back to them. Or you can pull out your phone, hold on a second, let me go to logicalfallacies.org and see what this one is. You just got to be able to detect it. Because a lot of people are taught a lot of stuff in school, and they're not taught how to logically think. Many times, the stuff that is taught to them are fallacious in nature. They are fallacies all over the place. And they're taught, well, this is the truth. Go with it. And they don't know how to think. So this is to help you guys understand how to think rightly. So there's a couple of different kinds of fallacies, but first we've got to get a definition. And there we go. An informal fallacy is a popular but invalid or unhelpful form of an argument. 
right? So this is where someone makes an argument, and it may be valid, sort of, or it may even be sort of true, but they make it in a way that invalidates it, all right? So it's important that we can be able to discover what these are. So what are some of these fallacies? What are some of the ideas? All right, back up to fallacy and tracking. There we go. Three types. Fallacies of distraction, fallacies of ambiguity, and fallacies of form. Fallacies of distraction, fallacies of ambiguity, and fallacies of form. We'll get these up here in just a minute anyway, so if you didn't get those written down, we'll go on right through them. Okay, so a fallacy of distraction is an argument that confuses the issue by pointing to information that is not relevant. Okay, it's saying, look over here, look over here, while over here you're doing something else. For example, in our picture here, oh, cute little chicks, and the duck's stealing the money in the background. All right, so here are the list of the different fallacies. And in your note packet, at least on this page, I think, or maybe, maybe not, um, this is the order in which you'll see them. The first one, ipsixit, which means arbitrary, or he has said it. This is simply where somebody believes something without facts behind it. So this is an arbitrary argument. I believe it because I believe it. That's just the way things are. Everyone decides for themselves what's true. That in itself is a logical fallacy. It's arbitrary. If you don't have to have facts or reasons for what you believe, you can believe anything. The sky is pink, but it looks blue, but oh, it's pink. All right, you can believe whatever you want. So an arbitrary, without facts argument. And you'll see people do this all the time. This is a very popular way to argue. This is the way people argue when they put their comments on your Facebook posts or your tweets or whatever, whatever method you have it. You have these arguments, and they're just simply based on feeling. They're based on no rational thought. Ad populum, which is Latin for by the people or of the people. This is also called the bandwagon. This is where you say, well, everybody knows that. So that, that's your argument. Well, everybody knows and fill in the blank. Okay. Um, an example of this one is nine out of ten people in the United States claim that this bill is a bad idea. Therefore, this ba bill is a bad idea. How about this one? Fifty million Elvis fans can't be wrong. All right. <laughs> Everyone's doing it. Therefore, it must be good. All right. So this is the simple fallacy of bandwagon. Everybody's doing it. The popular people are doing it. Whatever you know, Hollywood does it. Therefore, it must be true. Ad baculum means argument to the cudgel. That's something we need to bring back, that word, cudgel. Okay? No, it's not cuddling. Okay? A cudgel is a big stick. All right? It's to bludgeon somebody with it. All right? This is not a fun situation. You don't want to be cudgeled. All right? So this means to appeal to force. So an example of this, the employee says, I do not think the company should invest its money in this project. The employer, say that again and you're fired. You're fired. All right? Uh, you do not believe in God? Well, you'll go to hell for that. I mean, people will use it in a Christianly way and use fallacies, right? They will do that on a regular basis, and we will see all sorts of people use fallacious thinking. Now, is it, is it true? Possibly, but it's not a good reason to believe an argument, right? So you have to believe an argument because if you don't, you're going to get hurt. Right? That's not, that's fallacious thinking. That's not rational. That's not reason. Now, we could make an argument and walk through and say, well, the Bible says, 
that's a different argument. We're not appealing to me scaring you or hitting you or hurting you with something. Instead, it's appealing to a higher authority. Ad hominem means to the man or to the person. An ad hominem argument is where you attack the person that says it. Well, of course he would say that. He's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. Okay? Right? That, that's the way it goes. All right? Um, you know, something along the lines of uh, Christians can't, Christianity can't be true. Look at the Crusades. How many of you were on a crusade? Come on, raise your hands. All right. How many of you contributed to the Inquisition? Anyone? Right? Just Matt? Okay. All right. So that's, that's an argument attacking people that have been dead for thousands of years, hundreds of years, and they apply it to you. Right? So just because it's a person that's being attacked who doesn't keep up with what they say they're supposed to be doesn't prove that person's wrong. Anybody seen any attack ads lately? Uh, there I saw one from Hillary just last night. Donald Trump on a Letterman show, okay, with his, uh, his, his wardrobe that he had made in Singapore, right? And then she's like, well, yeah, he's going to ship our jobs here, whatever, right? And it was, it was attacking the man. And that's what politics deals with, okay? And the only reason I bring up Hillary is because I haven't seen a Donald Trump one yet. I'm sure there's some out there. There's lots of them. To attack a person is to say what they stand for is wrong. So that is a logical fallacy. To attack a person because of their character doesn't prove your point. It just proves that person doesn't match up or that group of people doesn't match up. Genetic fallacy. This is another one. It's called poisoning the well is another nickname. This is where you say a proposition, um, the source of it determines whether it's truthful or not. Or Stephen Colbert would say the truthiness of it. Right? How truthy is it? Okay? Is it true if it comes out of fear? Well, if it comes out of fear, then it can't possibly be true. You're just a Christian because your parents taught you that. You're just a Christian because you're scared of the boogeyman. You're just a Christian because you have daddy issues. You're just a, and you fill in the blank. Those are arguments based on, well, where this came from makes it true or not true. Tu quoque, which is Latin, which means you also. This is appeal to hypocrisy. This says, you don't follow what you believe, so therefore what you believe is wrong. So this is similar to the ad hominem, because the ad hominem usually is a more of a people group, but it's actually a confronting a person's statement. So this would be a hypocrisy argument, and we see this all the time. We see, you don't, you know, I heard you swear the other day, therefore Christians, you know, are a bunch of liars, because you told me not to, or something along those lines. Chronological snobbery, just like the name says, Newer is better, older is worse. And it can go both ways. Well, older is better, the new is not as good. All right, this is the MTV ageism thinking. I always thought ageism was something just Michael Scott made up uh, on The Office, but it actually is a classification of, uh, of snobbery. It's an actual understanding. It's saying, well, you're old, so that can't possibly be as valid as what I believe. Hinduism's older than Christianity, therefore it must be true. Oh, your sexual ideas are very Victorian, so therefore they're not true. Well, who you know, they also ate every day back in the Victorian era. Should we stop doing that? Because that's very Victorian, right? They didn't have fourth meal, but they had three, right? <laughs> so, questions on these so far? There's lots of them, okay? We'll keep going, cruising through these. The next set is the fallacies of ambiguity. There we go, Okay. Fallacy of ambiguity, arguments that confuse the real issue with vague, multiple, unclear meanings. First one, equivocation. This is where you change the definition of a word in the middle of a sentence, right? 
which is where you change it so that it means something totally different. Here's what I found. If all men are created equal, then why are some men stronger and smarter than others? So you see what they did there was equal means everybody has the same rights. And then at the end of the sentence, well, some people are bigger and stronger. Some people are smarter. So they changed the meaning of it right there. I believe there is no God, but nature sure does her thing well. There's no God, but you just classified nature as the one who made everything. That's the definition of God. And if you saw it, it's actually capitalized as well. So right in the middle of the sentence, they changed the definition of God from God to nature. So you see, you can see that all the time. Okay? Accents. This one is where you um, take the meaning of a sentence, change by placing the emphasis on something else or the emphasis, right? Okay? The emphasis on something else. So it's easy to see this in a written passage, and I have it in the notes, and I'll show it to you. So you can say, I didn't take the test yesterday. Why? Because someone else did, right? Or you can say, I didn't take the test yesterday, meaning I did not take it. I didn't take the test yesterday. I did something else with it, right? I didn't take the test yesterday. I took a different one. I didn't take the test yesterday. I took something else. So you see how this one sentence, depending on where your emphasis is, can change it. I didn't take the test yesterday. I took it a different day, right? So in the middle of a sentence, you can change the emphasis, and we do that all the time, right? Kids are great at this. Well, I didn't hit her. Okay, well, you didn't hit her, but you struck her. You know, they, they changed the definition. They, they put the emphasis on something else. Well, I didn't hit her. I hit the bat that flew into her face, right? So you, you see the accent is a little bit different. I'm not, this is just random. I'm not, my kids aren't this bad. Actually, they are. <laughs> Amphibolies. This is an ambiguity that is from ambiguous grammar, okay? So uh, it's kind of like equivocation, uh, except for it's really just, when I think of this one, this is the church sign. Anybody ever seen the random church signs online where it's like, don't let worry kill you off, let the church help? Okay, so the problem is, is that what is the let the church help about? Is it helping kill you off or is it the anxiety about, okay, which one is it? I'm opposed to taxes which slow economic growth. Is it all taxes or just the taxes that slow economic growth? What am I opposed to? So you can see this is kind of like Nostradamus, okay? You guys ever see his little quotations in the supermarket, and it's like something bad will happen on some day that ends in a Y, right? Okay, great. Thanks, Nostradamus. All right, that doesn't help with anything. It's that kind of a thing. It's an amphiboly. It's, it's making it vague enough that you're saying the truth but not saying the truth. Again, we're all teenagers, and, and well, all of us are good at doing this, right? Okay, composition. This is one that infers something that is true, of the whole from something as a part, okay? So for example, the fragment of metal cannot be fractured with a hammer. Therefore, the machine, which is made of the metal, cannot be fractured at all. So we say we take a small part of something and we say it must apply to the big thing, right? And, and that's another fallacious argument. And division is the exact opposite. It takes a big thing and says it's because of a big thing it must go to a small thing. All the second graders are really smart and Jimmy's a second grader, therefore he must be really smart. So you take a big, goes to a small. All right. We doing good on those? Okay. Next one's a fallacy of form. Oh, I love this. You keep, you, uh, let's see. You uh, ban Chick-fil-A because he's being too intolerant. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. 
I love Zuniga Montoya. Uh, but the idea of intolerant, right? Someone that's intolerant of Chick-fil-A because of their intolerant stance. They've changed the word in mid-sentence. Okay, that's that equivocation example. Plus Princess Bride Rock. All right, fallacies of form. These are arguments that fail to establish their conclusion, okay? Um, and again, these are all written down. I'll give you the notes. You don't have to worry about trying to write them all down. I'm sorry the notes weren't there. First one, begging the question. This is the one where it assumes what it's trying to prove, okay? So you assume what you're trying to prove to prove it. That's a fallacy. You can't do that. How do you know the future will be like the past? Because experience tells me so. You just didn't prove anything. All you did was say how you knew about the present. You didn't actually prove it. How are miracles not possible? Because all claims to be miracles have been disproven. Okay, that's, again, another begging the question. I believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. Here's another one. I think, therefore, I am. You just proved what you were trying to prove by begging the question. Okay? This is circular in nature, so this is another way you say this is circular argumentation. It's where you argue yourself right back to your point. Begging the question is a little bit harder to see. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. After it, therefore because of it. All right? Now, the best examples of this, baseball players. Okay? Um, I don't remember the guy, somebody will probably say his name, but there was a guy who was one year was just lights out pitcher, and he stopped stepping on lines. So he would run over to the third base line and he'd go uh, and jump all over the line because every time he stepped on a line, he'd get lit up for four or five RBIs and he'd get pulled. But since he didn't ever step on a line, every time he didn't step on a line, he pitched really well. So therefore, stepping on the line must have been the reason why he pitched really well. So you see, what happens is, is when we see this event leads to this event and then this thing happens after it, we go, well, those two must have caused it. So just because it comes after it, all we can prove is that it came after it. That's all we can prove. We can't prove that those things, that that's the reason why, right? Athletes are incredibly superstitious on this. They have their things that they do over and over again because, well, it worked before, and that must be the reason why I'm doing it. And I, I, I succumb to that. I would always not shave the day of a football game because I had a good game one time when I didn't shave my little two, you know, fuzzes that I had, right? So you kind of take that on with you. You see guys who don't wash their, 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 their uh, batting helmets and guys who do a certain routine every time because that to them is what caused it. And that's what we see. You know, somebody smacks the side of their TV and it comes on, right? Well, it must have been me smacking it. I'm going to do it every time. Well, maybe, maybe not, all right? Just because it happens after doesn't mean it actually caused it. Either or. I love these. These are called faulty dilemmas. Rabbi, who sinned, this man, uh, this man to be born blind, this man's parents or himself? That's an either or. As soon as you have an either or, it only gives you two options, and they're both not good options. You have to choose one because the person who set up the argument has said these are the only two, right? As a matter of fact, the argument from evil many times, or why God can't exist, either evil something he can't control or he won't control it, therefore God doesn't exist. Well, that's an either-or fallacy. You're saying the only two possible ways to understand evil is either that God can't stop it or he won't stop it. And so now you're stuck with which one's right. Well, actually, the Bible says there's another way. There's a different, there's, there's a broader idea that sometimes evil actually works for good and God uses it for his glory and there's so much more on that. So you see an either-or fallacy right there. All right, 
Complex question. Huh. Yeah. So uh, when did you stop beating your wife? There is no way to answer that question and not get in trouble. Yesterday. Well, I haven't stopped. Well, wait a sec. That's a problem. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of question. It's a question set up so that no matter how you answer it, you sound bad. Okay? Um, how many school shootings will we tolerate before we change the gun laws? That's a, that's a complex question. A few more. No more. Wait, wait, I, what, how, wait, what does that mean? So it's an assumption in there. And then last one, a prioriism or a prior. It's, this is an idea of a hasty generalization. Okay? This is where you say somebody says something, so then you accept it as the way it always is, anecdotally. Right? Four out of five doctors say, and then therefore it means all doctors everywhere believe it. All right? My father smoked five packs of cigarettes a day at age 14 and lived to the age 69. Smoking's not bad for you. Well, just because one person it didn't affect doesn't mean it won't affect all those. So this is a hasty generalization. All right. So those are the main fallacies. Okay? And we've cruised through them. There's a lot to them. The, there's more red herring, slippery slopes, scare tactics, two wrongs, make a right, and many, many, many more. Okay? Again, the rule of thumb here is if it, you get a conclusion and you're just like, I don't quite see how that comes up right, or it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. There's probably been a logical fallacy being used. Something is not right there. And then you can find out what the name of it is if the person demands it. Or many times you can just say, let's, let's think this through. Let's walk this out. What exactly are you saying? And many times logical fallacies will be contradictory of themselves as well. So that helps you as well. All right. Now, this is where we start getting into the actual method of apologetics. So turn, if you have your Bibles open, um, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. And on your uh, homework, there's ten fallacies. I obviously didn't use them all. Uh, I put some random fallacies. These are ones that I found on the Internet. People actually said, see if you can figure out what they are. Okay? We can talk about them next week. Not at the wedding. Two weeks. <laughs> all right. So this is what King Solomon. He writes, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him, okay? That's the first one we're going to look at, okay? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. Pretty self-explanatory. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. So what does this word fool mean? Well, the fool does not mean what we usually use it to mean. It does not mean idiot. It does not mean stupid. The Bible defines the word fool, and actually Solomon himself defines the word fool, as one who does what's right in his own eyes, right out of Judges, okay? Proverbs 12, 15 talks about it. Proverbs 28 says, a fool trusts his heart alone, okay? So a fool says, there's no God, I'm God, I'm the arbitrator of truth, okay? I decide what's true. Proverbs 3, 5, and the Lord, uh, the wise man is one who trusts in the Lord with all their heart and leans on his understanding. The fool has said there is no God, Psalm 14 and 53. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. So what we see is this idea of fool is someone who says, I know what's best. I'm not going to submit to the Lord. So it makes perfect sense. This is what we talked about day one of our apologetics class. Don't give up your ground. 
Over here is the ground that I'm standing on, God's Word. If I give this up, I am now entering into foolishness to be with the fools. I have given up everything that I have to fight with, and I'm on their territory. So, first and foremost, now I say first as in first priority, not first thing you must do with a non-Christian. First thing is we've got to stand on God's Word. We don't give up that territory. And we always go back to God's Word. It's a package deal. We're not going to argue for the truthfulness of this doctrine or this doctrine or that. We're going to argue for the truthfulness of the whole of the doctrine. But, Solomon goes on. Verse 5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. Oh, contradiction. Throw it out. Okay, Bible burning. Let's go. All right. No, this is not a contradiction. As a matter of fact, this is a tension in the text. Okay? There's a tension in the Bible. There's lots of them. Right? The whole God is three, God is one. That's a tension. Okay? The predestined but free will, tension. Okay? Mercy and justice, tension. There's a, there's a tension throughout the Bible. This is another one. And Solomon, what he's doing is he's saying, first and foremost, you have to be grounded in God's word. That's our starting place. But on occasion, you will step into the atheistic worldview to show why it doesn't work, that they're standing on sand that's washing away. So I found a nice little graphic here. This is the first part. Okay, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, So we're not entering into the fool's garb and going, okay, let's be fools together, and then I'm going to rationally walk you over to Christianity. Right, that's not what Solomon is condoning. Solomon is saying, you take your territory, he has his territory, and you're not going to give up your territory to go on his. All right? So you're not going to be foolish and be the fool. But then, when he goes to the second part, you're going to take the word, the scripture, you're going to take the revealed word in general revelation, special revelation, incarn incarnational revelation, which is Jesus, and you're going to hold up the mirror to the fool and say, look at this. This is what you look like. Look at what you're standing on. It's nothing. And the only time you have anything to stand on is when you come over to my side and you say, there is logic. There is truth. There is all these things that are not material. You see how ridiculous it is. They're standing over here and saying, everything is matter. And you say, okay, what's your, what's your reasoning for that? Well, in logic, we say, okay, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. You said logic. Where is that? Can we measure it? Can I taste it? Can I see it? Can I touch it? Can you put it in a jar? Where is logic? Well, it's this thing that's what? Not matter? Oh, that's my worldview you're standing on now. You are using the Christian worldview that there are things outside of matter like logic that are consistent, that are uniform to prove that you are logical. All right? So you see the problem there kids. All right. So, we destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, we destroy the speculations. So, that's the part of showing the fool his folly. We show him that it's not true. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and Gentiles foolish. So, here is the procedure. It's pretty simple, okay? There's two parts. We must present the truth. That's the don't answer a fool according to his folly, okay? We stand on the truth, and we say, here is truth. 
And then negatively, we enter into their worldview temporarily and say, okay, okay, okay. Let's imagine you, you say that there is nothing outside of matter. Now, notice we're not even talking about God or the accuracy of the Bible. We're just saying let's talk about your worldview and how it falls out. This is where it lines out. If your worldview is that we are chance and chaos happening over time, then why is there any sort of law? Why is there any sort of order? Why is there any sort of uniformity of nature? And the answer is they can't account for it. They cannot account for why nature is the way it is and how intertwined it is, how irreducibly complex it is. Why? Because it's chaos acting on matter, on chance, over millions and millions of years. But if you walk over to my worldview, we have a consistent God who says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's how we have consistency. We have, he made each animal after their own kind. He made them to interact with each other. That's the worldview that it matches up to. So you see there's a negative and a positive. Now, it's important that you get, we don't have to do this in order, okay? This is, we can do this a couple different, this is kind of an ebbing and flowing apologetic method. You don't have to go, oh wait, first before I'm going to not enter your worldview, let's talk about mine. No, you may have to enter their worldview first to then get them to let you talk about how yours does not fail the tests of understanding, arbitrariness, and consistency, and so on. So, stand firm on your own presuppositions. Present the truth of Christianity to the unbeliever. You must respond from within your own worldview, refusing to accept their unbeliever's assumptions and methods. They want you to say, let's set aside the Bible and let's set aside God's existence, because that's what they've already done, all right? They want that. No, you're going to say, no, we're going to argue from it so that we can show it actually makes sense of it. And that's the starting place that we must have I mean, that's the place we must get to with every single unbeliever. The second one, temporarily adopt their presuppositions to do what's called an internal critique. Can their worldview make sense of reality? Because if it can't, then it is false, okay? It's a false reality. And the number one thing is they can't even come up with how we can even know anything. Right? How do we even know anything at all? Their epistemology, the source of knowledge, is completely faulty because my brain is just chemicals reacting with some other chemicals that happen by chance. I may not even be seeing reality as reality is. That's how they view it. Over here, we have a consistency that matches with what is reality. Over here, they have an inconsistency and try to borrow from our worldview whenever they feel like it. Is this making sense to you guys? Are we getting it? Okay. Well, like I said, this is, this is where we're going to be camping. Christianity, this is ultimately where we're arguing. This is our positive. Christianity is the only worldview that makes sense of reality. No other worldview makes sense. Now, when I was first studying this, this is where I struggled. Because I would say, okay, yeah, I can understand how we could say the Bible is God's word and I'm going to stand on God's word and it is true. But wouldn't a Muslim say the same thing? I stand on the Koran. Or a Mormon. I stand on the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, and everything that the, uh, the, uh, the chief prophet has said over the last hundred years. Right? That's a lot to stand on. That, that's what they stand on. Okay? Or the Buddhist would say, I stand on the, the Gita, however you say that. Okay? Or the Hindus standing on their revealed word. What's the difference? Well, ultimately the difference is all of those fail the same tests that atheism fails. And I'll show this to you guys in two weeks when we start saying we're looking for the same exact thing. 
arbitrariness, inconsistency, and can they account for knowing anything? Because ultimately, every single worldview fails. Why? Because they're not the right one. There is one right worldview, and then there's all the wrong ones. That's the way the Bible lays it out. And that's the way we have to approach things. We have home court advantage of an incredible source. We know that it's true. We know the God of the universe has revealed it's true. And we can now show them that as well. Then we challenge the unbeliever to have an answer. We take them. Actually, one of the verses says uh, they don't have an answer. And the word is um, uh, uh, apologia, which means no ready defense. And that's what the non-believer is. The non-believer does not have an answer for this. When you approach them and you say, okay, if I'm just evolved pond scum that is somehow sentient, how can I make sense of the world around me? How can I say there is a good or a bad? How can I understand anything? And they're going to go, well, actually, we can't understand anything. Is that how you live? No, I, I live as if there is a way to understand everything. Well, your worldview doesn't work that way. So it's got to be false. It's an inconsistency. It's contradictory. All right, so that's what we're looking at as we go through this. Some more on this. I have some examples here for you. Evans Hill said, the only proof of the Christian position is that unless it's true, is presupposed there is no possibility of proving anything at all. C.S. Lewis writes, there is a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all our reasoning power comes. See, the atheist does not ultimately meet the needs of intelligence. They cannot explain why anything is intelligible. How can we understand anything? There's no way to have a reasonable discourse if you can't communicate. The Humanist Manifesto writes this, Knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. Humanists find that science is the best method for determining this knowledge, as well as solving problems and developing beneficial technologies. Now, back to the law of non-contradiction. They're saying the only way to know anything is to observe it. Where did you observe that? Where did they observe that? All knowledge comes from observation. Have you observed everything? Show me, measure for me all knowledge and observation. Well, okay, well, it's all based on sense experience. Okay, tell me where you saw all knowledge coming only from sense sensations. They can't. See, it fails to meet its own criteria. Observation and sense perception cannot account for all knowledge. It's a faulty assumption. It's a contradiction of itself. And if it contradicts itself, it's what? It's false. It's not true. Okay? Because if you have two contradictory statements, you can prove anything. All right, we're almost done. So atheists have no reason for their reason. Ultimately, this is what one philosopher said. In order to slap God's face, you must first crawl up into his lap. You have to use reason to try to show there is no reason for God. You're using God and his nature to try to say there is no God. Again, it's that arguing that there's no such thing as oxygen as you breathe it. Okay, last little thought here and then we're done. Luke 12, 27. Jesus says, consider the lilies, right? And talks about them being clothed and all that. Well, let's just take those three words. Consider the lilies, a flower. Unbelievers can't even explain a flower. They're stymied by it. Because in their worldview, they cannot account for most of what makes up that flower. So here are some examples. 
This is kind of a preview of where we're going to be going next week, in two weeks. The unbeliever can't explain matter. Where does matter come from? Where does it come from? I heard a uh, quote one time. Some scientists were standing before God. Obviously, this is not true, just in case you didn't get that. Scientists are standing before God, and they say, God, we don't need you anymore. God goes, oh, okay, that's interesting. Why? And they said, well, we figured out how to make man out of dirt. And they go, God goes, wow, okay, I had my way. I'd love to see your ways. And they said, well, first you do is take the dirt. And he goes, ah, no, 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 no. Make your own dirt. See, that's the, the problem is that, yeah, we can talk all about what matter does, and we can even define it somewhat. We still don't have a clue on what it is, really. But where does it come from? How does matter come out of nothing? We're still stuck with the same problem. The, the unbeliever can't account for that. The believer can. So, 1-0, right? Okay, we're keeping score. He can't explain induction. Remember, induction is taking specific examples and then making big, broad assertions. The non-believer has no reason to believe that tomorrow morning gravity will be here. Right? Well, it's always been here. Yeah, but you know what? We don't even know if the past is actually there. We don't even know anything about the past. And why does that mean the future is going to be like the past? Well, because it's always been that way. That's begging the question. You are not proving that the future will be anything like the past, except for based upon what you see right here and right now, and a really big assumption. Whereas a Christian can say, I know the future is like the past because my God is the same one. And it will be the same all the way through. Chaos and chance don't produce regularity, right? They don't produce regularity. And if you have any questions about chaos and chance, make sure you come and work in the nursery, okay? <laughs> they cannot account for logic, okay? Logic, they can't even explain what logic is because they say everything is material. Well, but logic is immaterial. Don't even get an in, a, a materialist talking about love, because love is this thing that all these songs are about, and it's the greatest thing, and God is it, and what is love? Well, it's a force that connects us and binds us and binds the universe together. No, that's the wrong force. But the logic is an immaterial thing used by materialists. Problem, okay? Again, they can't account for any of this. They can't explain values. Is the flower pretty? Is it beautiful? Is the color pleasing to the eye? Does it smell good? Does it smell rotten? Okay. Is it valuable of any sort? Is it worth stomping on? Or is it worth giving to someone that you love? Values cannot come from anything in the unbeliever's realm except for themselves. And it's all over the place. Any unbeliever who is consistent will say, I am the source of what I think is right or wrong. Okay. And then you can go, well, what about... What about the pedophile who says, well, this is right for me? Okay, what about the man who says, well, when I die, I want my wife to be burned on the pyre with me? What about the person who says, you know what, I really feel like killing. I feel joy from that, so why can't I kill? See, if my motives, if my ethics is derived from me, then there's really nothing I can't do. And you see it on the faces of people when they get punished for stuff in our society. Be whoever you want. Do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. Well, it makes me happy to do this. Well, now you're going to jail. It doesn't make any sense because it's based on a faulty assumption that you need to do whatever you want. There is no right or wrong. You make right or wrong for you. They can't even explain the flower, how it works together with the rest of the world. Okay? Everything up there, I promise. 
They can't even explain the explanation of the flower. And then lastly, they can't even explain how we're conscious of the flower. If I am just pond scum that came together differently than other pond scum and became the highest, bestest pond scum on the planet, how come I am conscious but the rock isn't? How come I am conscious but the amoeba isn't? How come I am conscious but, and you can keep going. How, where did that come from? What makes us different than all the others? Well, what their answer to that is, well, we're not different, so we're all the same. Animals deserve rights. Rocks deserve rights. You know, it, whatever that may be. And so the atheists cannot explain any of this. Ultimately, they are left with no explanation. So lastly, we need to Apollo evangelize. We must, and again, this can go in any order. So this is kind of our, our to-do list, right? We must have relationships with non-believers. We have to cannot be an island to ourselves. We cannot be a mutual admiration society that comes together and all we do is we know a bunch of Christians. You've got to have non-Christians. Now, I'm not saying you've got to have 40 of them. I'm not saying you need to have Facebook friend non-Christians. That would be good, but that's not the only place. I'm meaning actual human-to-human -human contact. Have non-Christians that you interact with. You have to have that. You must be students of our worldview and their worldview. Listen to them. Not just listen for cues, not just ask them what they believe and then come out with your ready-to-go thing. Have a relationship with them and listen. Remember, they're going to change their worldview. We talked about that. We see people that go from existentialism right into determinism, right back into this, into Marxism, and maybe even some Plato thrown in there. And this is Oregon, after all. We might see a lot of Platonists because we do some weird stuff here, right? So as we are interacting with them, listen for those cues that we talked about last week. We must have a firm understanding of what we believe. We must be students of the word. We've got to know what we believe. Know it. Get discipleship. If you're a, if you're a baby believer, get Pastor Dave. Find an older believer, someone who's been a Christian for a while. Get into it. There are so many resources. We live in more information than we know what to do with. The pastors here will help, definitely help you streamline and get yourself focused. Know what you believe. Okay? We don't have to have stacks and stacks of books about all of what they believe. All right? We just need to know what we believe, and we know it well. We must enter their worldview and show them how it doesn't work. This is not just simply, hey, if you come over here, we're happier. Hey, if you come over here, we have better potlucks than the atheist churches. Oh, you don't have one. Okay, we have a church. Come over here. That's not it. We enter into their worldview to say, look, if you follow it out to its actual completion, it's hopeless it's despair it makes no sense of anything and the only way that you have not the world itself has not killed itself is because they borrow from the christian worldview all the time to make their lives manageable and they are doing it regularly they're constantly picking and choosing the parts of christianity that they like and applying it to their lives and we're saying well if that part is true the whole of it is true and let me show you why let me show you where we must do it with kindness and respect. We talked about that the first week. Winsome, okay? We want to be able to talk to them, be ready for them to say things that are just m massively inappropriate, that'll be offensive. I thought Christians did this, and correct them. Show them where they're wrong. Take them to the Word. And then finally, we just take them to the Lord. We leave all the results up to God. We take them to the throne. We show them the truth. We get them Bibles. We get them into church if they'll go get them listening to podcasts, we debate, we spend hours and hours and hours with them, and we just want to take them to the throne. 
but we cannot take him to the throne unless we've been there ourselves. So first and foremost, we got to have ourselves right. Now, that's not saying, well, put it off till I'm, you know, the, the saint that's behind Pastor Dave, right? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm not saying you got to be way up here before you can start evangelizing. I mean, childlike faith is all you need. And then from there, take what the Bible says and run with it. Get to know your word. So, non-contradictions homework, fallacies homework, go ahead and give those a shot. Uh, see how you do with those. At least look over them and kind of role play them in your mind, you know. Uh, if you're married or you have someone that you hang out with a lot that's here tonight, you guys could do them back and forth and just discuss. Anything to get you thinking about this outside of me yammering at you uh, will be a good practice for you. Uh, and the logical fallacies, those can be a little more difficult to spot. But again, it's not about knowing the names, except for on the homework. It's not about knowing the names. It's about detecting them and not being fooled by them. Does anyone have any questions before I close this out? Anything at all? Okay, so in two weeks, what we'll do is we will dig into a couple different worldviews. Um, I'm going to touch on Mormonism, probably do some Islam. Um, maybe I'll obviously do some atheism because there's a lot of different varieties of that. Um, and if there's any other ones that somebody's like, you know what, could you just touch on briefly, what I'll do is I'll do kind of an overview of what they believe, and then I'll talk about how we would talk to them about their, their worldview, how we would enter in and do a critique of it, looking for those inconsistencies and arbitrariness, and can they account for knowledge. So that's what we're doing. So if you have any of them other than those three, uh, please tell me. Uh, pull me aside. Tell Pastor Matt, Pastor Dave, um, any of those guys. Okay? Matt, I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. Is that good? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your inspired word. Thank you for all of the, the blessings that it has for us, Lord. It is a, a well that we can dig and dig and dig and never reach the bottom of. So I pray, Lord, that we would do that. We would do that daily. We would do that as many times, as much time as we can. And Lord, that would be the priority, that we would know you so well that we can't help but share to those around us. And as we share, Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the wisdom, the insight to be able to dig in um, and, and show them the truth that is you. But we want that more than anything else, Lord. In your holy and exalted name, amen.